The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So, I believe it was my second year at Shades. I was still a seminary student, and I was pretending like I knew what I was doing as the office administrator. Uh, It was the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday. Uh, At Shades, we have a service uh, on Ash Wednesday that starts the season of Lent. Lent, for those of you that do not know, is a season of fasting and repentance that we observe together as a body. But Jonathan came up to me that Tuesday and said, uh, Hey Brad, you didn't throw away the palm fronds from uh, the last Palm Sunday, did you? Because you know that we burn those and use that ash to make the sign of the cross on people's heads. And I immediately responded, Jonathan, of course I knew that. I didn't throw them away. That was partially the truth. The truth was, I didn't know we did that, and I definitely threw them away. (laughs) But by the grace of God, I did not ruin Ash Wednesday. A saint from the decor team had put some in the back away from my horrible administrator skills. So on that Ash Wednesday, I did something new, something I'd never done before. I took the palm fronds and I burned them so that we could all receive the imposition of ashes on our head, a black cross on our foreheads, a solemn reminder of our mortality and our need for a Savior King to rescue us from death. So now because I burn the palm fronds every year, When I see them on Palm Sunday, I immediately see a black cross. There is such a close connection between the two for me. When I look at the palm fronds, I just see a black cross. If it's your first time with us, uh, here's a body we've been walking through the Gospel of John together. And last week in John 12, we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where he rides in on a young donkey, and the crowd waves palm branches to honor him as king, and they cry, Hosanna, Uh, Hosanna, give salvation now. Literal translation of Hosanna. And as the crowd looks at the palms, and as the crowd looks at Jesus, they see a king but they definitely do not see a cross. They see a king, but they definitely do not see a cross. They see a a king and a kingdom, but they do not see citizens that will be called to take up their cross under his lordship. They do not see it. They see salvation. They see life but they do not see the death that will come before that life. We pick up in verse 20 today, sometime after Jesus' entry, where he is approached by some Greeks. Read along with me if you have your Bibles. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, And asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. 
Now, when I read this, my first question was, who are these Greeks, and why do they want to see Jesus? Uh, who are these people, and what's the point of this? Well, here are these Greeks. It seems, the term seems to refer to Gentiles who came from part of the Greek-speaking world. Uh, these would have been people who were admirers of Judaism, uh, who attached themselves to the Jewish way of life, but they didn't become official converts. They could come and worship at the temple, but they could not worship in the inner courts. There was a wall with a sign that warned them not to come in, because if they did, there would be punishment on the pain of death. They were removed to the outer walls. And we don't know why they come to Jesus, or why they go to Philip first. Uh, maybe they weren't sure how Jesus would receive them. I think we could understand that. Uh, maybe they approached Philip because he had a Greek name, uh, spoke Greek, or because he came from the same region that they did. The text, it doesn't give us those sort of details. But what we do know, what we do know is that they're approaching Jesus actually points beyond the immediate situation. Their approaching of Jesus points beyond the immediate situation. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23 with me. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, when the disciples come to Jesus with the Greeks' request, he doesn't directly respond to their request, does he? Hey Jesus, some Greeks are here to see you. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. K is that a yes? No, should I tell him to come back at another time? Right? He doesn't directly respond to their request, does he? No. He responds to what the Greeks seeking him ultimately represents. The Jewish authorities have plotted to kill him. And these Greeks, who I think represent the world, are trying to get his attention. In this moment, the approach of the Greeks for Jesus is like a trigger. Or a signal that the climactic hour of his life has dawned. These Greeks may want an interview with him now, but it is only after his hour that they will really behold who he is. And they will really belong to him. The hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what does the hour refer to? What is this referencing? Well, in John, it's not referring to 60 minutes, the time period, or the TV show. The TV show, that was pretty obvious. Probably didn't need to state that. It's not referring to a period of time. Uh, it, it appears that the hour refers to the appointed time for the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. All of that together. The hour, the passion, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And at that hour, we will really see the glory of Jesus. At that hour, we will really see 
His beauty. We will, we will really see who He is. He will be glorified. Glorified. Uh, glorify. Well, in the New Testament, glorify can have a dual meaning. Alright? It can mean two things. It can mean to honor, to praise. One meaning of to glorify. Um, to give glory to God. Give honor to God. Right? Um, but it can also mean something else. Uh, to glorify can also mean to endow with visible splendor or beauty. Hmm. To glorify, to endow with visible splendor and beauty. You see, I, I know for me, and maybe this is just me, but the tendency for myself can be to think of the cross simply as suffering, followed by the glory of the resurrection. Suffering in the cross, followed by the glory of the resurrection, but but John won't allow for that type of thinking. John won't allow for that type of thinking. The, the passion, death, death, resurrection, ascension, they're all glorious. And part of the glory that we see with the hour is the death of Jesus. Now, I want to talk about Two breathtaking paradoxes this morning at the cross. Two breathtaking paradoxes that I want us to think about. The first is beauty and disfigurement and death. Beauty and disfigurement and death. And then the second is honor and humiliation and shame. Honor and humiliation and shame. But first, we see the beauty of the sun and disfigurement and death. Um, there's this weird scene in Exodus 33 where Moses begs God, show me your glory. And the Lord says to him, I will pass before you in my glory, but you cannot look directly upon my face, Moses, or you will die. And the Lord tells Moses that he will put him in a hole of the rock and he will cover Moses with his hand until he passes by. And, and after the Lord passes in front of him, Moses will get a glimpse at his backside. Yep. And when that moment of revelation comes for moment, Moses, when he's in the rock, when the Lord passes before Moses, he speaks. And the glory is not just visible the glory there is a word. And what is that word that Moses hears? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love for thousands. What, what is the glory that's revealed? It's, it's the radiance of God's character. It's the beauty of, its, of his character. It's, it's the beauty of who he is. That's what Moses hears. He, he couldn't look upon the face of God with all of his beauty or he, he would die, but he could hear about who God is. 
Now, that glory, that revelation of God's character, who God is that Moses heard in the rock, we see on full display as Christ hangs nailed to a cross, bloody and beaten. That glory that Moses heard, you see? The Lord God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands. We see on the cross, we see as Christ hangs nailed to a cross, bloody and beaten. At the cross, we see the beauty of the steadfast love of God. In the flesh, we see the beauty of His faithfulness. We sin against the Creator by substituting ourselves for God. And astonishingly, on the cross, God substitutes Himself for us. We selfishly put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God Himself selflessly um, is hung on the cross where we deserve to be. Do you see that? God puts Himself selflessly where we deserve to be. God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. That's a statement worth thinking about for a while. That's the cross in light of Trinitarian theology. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God Himself sends Himself to save us from Himself, but to save us from death, to save us from sin, to save us from the devil. So, this morning, I want us to stare at the crucified man on a cross. Um, it, it's going to be painful. Uh, it's going to be bloody. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Because there we see who God is. There we see the character of God. There's beauty and disfigurement and death, but there's also honor. The Son is honored in humiliation and shame. The Son is honored in humiliation and shame. And this was interesting to me as I investigated this text. You see, in the Roman world, crucifixion was the most humiliating form of official execution. Um, they didn't crucify people uh, in private for no one to see. <laughs> um, no, they crucified people in public for everybody to see. Look, everybody, look how small and insignificant and powerless Jesus is. What a joke. What a joke. Where, where is the honor in this shame? Where is the honor in this shame? Well, I hope you like paradox because we have another one. Another paradox. Jesus being glorified is closely bound up with his refusal to seek his own honor. Or let me put it this way. Jesus being honored is bound up in his refusal to seek his own honor. You get that? Jesus 
refusal to seek his own honor is closely bound up with him being honored. You see, the cross is the furthest thing from Jesus seeking his own honor. On the cross, Jesus seeks to honor and obey who? The Father. He seeks to honor and obey the Father. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, has been committed to do it what, pleasing, what pleases his Father. And the cross is Jesus' ultimate self-denial and dedication to the Father. Do you see that? He walks in obedience to the Father. But, and I think we can miss this sometimes, the cross also shows the self-dedication and power of the Father. Do you see? The cross also shows the self-dedication of the Father because the Father honors Jesus when he vindicates him beyond death, exalting him into heaven and showing the world that Jesus is God and King. God made an instrument of death shame and humiliation into a symbol of Christ's worth and power over death. Death. And now the cross leads to worship. When I was in seventh grade, I was thrown into a youth praise band, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, no idea what I was doing. They said, we need a drummer. And my sister said, my brother plays drums. No, not true. I had a drum set. That's very different from playing drums. And thrown in there with everybody. And one of the first songs that I had to learn uh, at the time felt like it was something written by Beethoven. But it wasn't. It was the wonderful cross. <laughs> the wonderful cross. Do you realize how insane that song would sound in the Roman world? The wonderful cross? You didn't talk about the cross in polite conversation. Because of the shame associated with it. But today, as we come to worship and lift up Jesus, what is at the center of our worship? It's the cross. It's no longer a place of shame. Do you see? It's a place of honor for Jesus. Look what God can do. And what do we sing? Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The, the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. Beauty, honor, and death. Beauty, and honor, and death. In that hour, the Son of Man will be glorified. The world will see how beautiful Jesus is and that he deserves our all. Our life. Everything. Life through death. Life through death. Look how Jesus illustrates the cross in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. Like the seed whose death is the precondition of life for a great crop, so Jesus' death produces a plentiful harvest. He disappeared into the grave like a grain of wheat covered in dirt. He disappeared into the grave like a grain of wheat covered in dirt. He died so that new life, new life may spring up. You see, what looks like the grain's demise is in fact its harvest. Do you follow me on that? What looks like the grain's demise is in fact its harvest. And if the principle modeled by the seed that death is the necessary condition for the generation of life is uh, applied to Jesus, then for those in Christ, it applies in a similar way to us. It applies in a similar way to us. Life through death. Life through death. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Hmm. Now, if I'm being honest, at first this may sound a little odd to us. Um, Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We We don't use this language, do we? Hey man... I've been praying for you. Really? Thanks. Yeah, I've been praying that you would hate your life. Uh, thanks? Hey, can we take Brad off the prayer team? Right? It sounds odd. Um, what does that mean? What, what's going on here? Well, the love-hate contrast here is a way of speaking about a fundamental allegiance a fundamental allegiance the love-hate contrast that we see here is a way of speaking about a fundamental allegiance you see to love one's life here means to live as a citizen or excuse me to live as the king not the citizen to call the shots to be the center of the story to have it your way to look out for yourself. But to hate one's life is to give one's allegiance not to self, but completely and totally to King Jesus. It's to abandon one's own throne, one's own kingdom, one's own purposes in everything. In everything. Now, Recently, I was uh, reading C.S. Lewis. Uh, I was reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. Um, But The Great Divorce is uh, a theological dream fantasy. I don't know what else to call it. 
uh, that Lewis uses to reflect on heaven and hell. Now, hell in this fantasy of Lewis, um, it's not fire and brimstone. But, in my mind, it's actually more horrifying. Hell, for Lewis, is described as a gray, dismal town where the streets and the residences stretch out so far that it would require centuries of travel to get from one end of the city to the other. Well, why? Well, it's because the citizens want to get as far away from each other as possible. And I know for some introverts in here, that sounds like heaven. But stay with me. Right? Um, there's, there's, no, there's no culture. Uh, there's no commerce. There's no interaction at all. Nobody trusts another person. Nobody wants to give themselves to another person in any way, shape, or form. And so they remove themselves. And they completely isolate themselves. It is a complete and total turn inward. Complete and total turn inward. Uh, One example of this is uh, a scene where Napoleon, sorry Napoleon, is described as pacing back and forth alone in his mansion, day and night, constantly blaming others for wronging him. Day and night, he, he paces back and forth, and he thinks of what he would have sh- and should have said to other people, and he thinks of how other people have wronged him and, and hurt him, right? Um, you know what that is? That is an eternity of self-justifying, and it's hell. An eternity of being completely turned on, completely turned in on yourself. That is the telos, or the end, of a life curved in on self. And it's no life, is it? That's not beautiful. But it's a life in which you are the king, into opposition to the rule of Jesus. And on this earth, it sounds so appealing, doesn't it? Look out for yourself. Do what you want. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do. Guard yourself. Put up walls. Don't let anybody in. Gain your security. It sounds so beautiful, but it's so horrifying. This picture, complete isolation apart from anything good of God. But, but, the one who loses their life who dies to themselves and their own kingship, experiences new life, not turned inward, but turned outward onto Christ. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The uh, Cost of Discipleship, I realize I quote Bonhoeffer a lot. I'm, oops, I'm sorry, I'm, here we are. Nothing we can do now. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, in all seriousness, his, his cost of discipleship is probably one of the greatest books on discipleship that's ever been written. In his chapter titled Discipleship and the Cross, he comments on Mark 8, where Jesus famously says, we all know, 
Um, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's, it's a text that has a lot of similarity to our text today. And look at what Bonhoeffer says. Bonhoeffer says this. The cross is laid on every Christian. Hmm. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is a dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give ourselves over to death. Thus it begins. And I thought this was beautiful. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. In, in shades, if, if we have trusted in Christ, if we have set our gaze outward onto him, then we're no longer slaves to ourselves. Praise God. But as adopted sons and daughters of the king, justified only by his grace through faith, we are called to follow him. And that following means putting the kingdom of Brad Brown to death. Every day. Every day day. To follow Jesus as king, it's a call to death. It's a call to self-denial. It's a call to suffer. I'm feeling an altar call. Who wants to come down and believe in Jesus? Doesn't that sound great? But we don't get a king without a cross. We don't get life without death. The cross, it's a call to self-denial and sacrificial serving. Shades, in light of Christ, singleness is a call to self-denial and sacrificial service. It's not purgatory until marriage or an excuse to indulge, to do whatever you want. Live it up, I'm single. No, it's an opportunity to use your freedom and your struggles to encourage and serve others. It's an opportunity to practice sacrificial love and friendship. In light of Christ, marriage and family is a call to self-denial and sacrificial service. It's not about someone fulfilling you or providing the life that you always dreamed of. No, it's about Christ's glory. It's not about your vision of your own glory. In light of Christ, our work, our jobs, is a call to self-denial and sacrificial service. Work is no longer a means to get titles or recognition. Your work is not a way to self-justify yourself, to feel real good about yourself, right? No, it's a call to participate in God's redeeming work in this world, whether that's working a nine-to-five in one place for the rest of your life or whether that is abandoning everything in suburbia, all the comfort and security in leaving to take the gospel to the nations. I believe that God is calling both right now in this congregation. And believe me, both is a call to the cross. Both is a call to die to self. In light of Christ, the church is a call to self-denial 
and sacrificially serve. Shades Valley, deny yourself and sacrificially serve others. You're going to suffer. Come on in. Right? But it is. It, oh gosh, I don't want to make anyone mad with this, but it's, it's not a place to have all your needs met. It's not a place to feel good about all your insecurity. It's a place to meet the needs of others. You see? And in our age of the next big thing and do what's best for you, maybe the most beautiful thing you can do is be a faithful member of a church. <laughs> no matter how ordinary or dull that may seem, God works beautifully in the ordinary. And we normally don't see it until years later. And even then we don't even see the whole picture. In all of this, God is calling us to die. He's calling us to die. He's calling us to die because he wants us to live, Shades. He wants us to live. All of this is his grace on our life. God is conforming us to Christ by his Holy Spirit. He's turning us outward, away from ourself, and on to him. And one of the most, I've said this before, one of the most liberating things that you can do one of the most freeing things that you can do is to get over your own story. One of the most freeing things you can do is to get over your own story and let Christ's story of life, death, and resurrection engulf it. Set your gaze on Christ. Can I ask a question, Shades? Each day as we wake up and live our lives what are you setting before you? You're setting something before you. Is it other people on social media? Are we constantly looking at them and saying, well, I don't have that, and I don't have that spouse, and I don't have that income, and I don't have those children? Is that what we're setting before us? Is it the news? There's nothing wrong with watching the news. There's nothing wrong with having social media, but are we constantly setting that before us in such a way that there's nothing but fear and we constantly seek to make ourselves secure to protect ourselves from all the horrible things that are happening. Is that what we're setting before us? Shades, can I plead with us? And I'm speaking to myself each day when we wake up. Can we set Christ before us? Can we look at Christ hanging on a, cry, a cross? Because what we look at and what we gaze upon is shaping our desires and our affections. It's shaping how we live. And so if that's the case, then let's gaze upon Jesus. Let's see the beauty of that and have our affections stirred for him, towards him. This is important, to set our gaze on Christ, because I want to be clear about this. The way of the cross is not an act of sheer will or self-determination. The way of the cross is not you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and feeling real bad about this sermon. And so they're saying, okay, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to do better. It's not a turn inward. It's a turn outward. Can we, can we go back to the cross for a second? Can we set a vision of life before us that is beautiful? Let's do that. What happens on the cross? Well, Christ, by the Spirit, honors the Father through his selfless obedience. Because he loves and trusts the Father. 
The Father, by the Spirit, gives honor to the Son by vindicating Him beyond death and exalting Him to His right hand forever. Did did you see that? It was a little dense. I want you to see this. Look at the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at the love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because when you do, you are gazing into the very life of God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist eternally in a relationship of mutual, self-giving, and selfless love. And through our union with the Son, right, we've been united with Christ, we use that language. Through our union with the Son, by the Holy Spirit, we have entered into that loving communion. We've been caught up into that loving communion now and forever. Isn't that beautiful? Now, can I go back to Lewis for a second? In Lewis's vision of hell, nobody loves another person because of self-preservation, self-centeredness, and the fear that someone could hurt them. But, eternal life under the kingship of Christ in communion with God is a life of love with no reservation. Love with no self-preservation. It is love with no concern of self. It is love with no fear because there is perfect trust. I'm going through this quick. Can we, can we think about this for a second? It is love with no sense of self-preservation. It's love with no reservation, no holding back. Why? Because you completely trust the other. Because all you know is perfect, selfless love. That is the life and communion that we have in God. That is the glory that we are headed towards. But that glory will only come on a road that is paved with death to self and suffering because you love other people. You love other people and you are so secure in the love that you have in Jesus Christ that you give yourself to others without any regard of yourself. That will bring suffering. But know when you are doing that, you are being disciples of Jesus Christ. Our master may have suffered, but he was glorified. He sits in glory now, and we sit there with him by the Holy Spirit. And one day we will spend an eternity, not just on golden streets or in clouds with harps, but in communion with the God who is perfect love forever. Amen.